and to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of God. Gav. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Mac Avenue Community Church. You can have a seat. That last song uh, gets me every time. I was going to say the words, but I think I'll lose it. Um, Welcome to church. Uh, My name is Jonathan Demers, and I am a proud member of this community. Um, You guys are fortunate to be a part of this space this morning. We welcome you if you're new. We welcome you if you've been here for a long time. Um, We are in the middle of a series on Lent and Easter together, um, and the theme is giving up. Um, prior to myself, Elder Matthew Rojek led us in a teaching on giving up our enemies. And after him, Elder Alvin Weathersby led us in a discussion in a time of learning on giving up our lives. And so today we're going to be focusing on a different theme, but still within this greater theme of giving up, and that's giving up the ways of the world. Um, next week also we'll be capping off this series with Pastor Eric Russ, and he'll be leading us in a time of giving up our lives, or I'm sorry, giving up death. Um, So I invite you guys to come and join us that Sunday as well next week. A couple of rules and norms for how we operate here in church. Um, We have a number of extra Bibles in the back, as well as, um, yeah, a bunch of resources, but primarily those Bibles. Um, If you need a copy, feel free to grab one from the back. Quite a few have been passed out already, Um, but you're welcome to grab one for this service. Um, Also, if you have questions and you would like to ask a question during service, that's totally okay. That's just how we operate here in church. Just raise your hand and let me know, um, and I will be glad to answer your question. I do say, though, if your question is more specific to you, something that's going on in your life specifically, or a question that you have that might not pertain to the whole body, just wait, and then maybe we can talk about it after service. I'll be up here. Um, But again, if you have a question that pertains to the whole body, feel free to ask. Um, And then also... Because I really want to handle this text well and carefully, I cite a number of different sources, both within Scripture and outside of Scripture. If you have any questions about that, if you want to know where I got these quotes from, they're on the screen, but I'm also happy to talk to you about that as well. Um, and I tend to have a pretty quick pace. So, if, uh, again, if you have those questions and I'm not noticing you, wave your hand fast. Um, but in that vein, I also ask you guys really to be engaged, really to take this as an opportunity to learn. Um, Palm Sunday is, I think for many of us who have been in the faith for a long time, almost too familiar. So I want to really challenge us to to step into this passage anew um, and to really come and reason together, to come and listen to what scripture has to say. Um, So I just want to encourage us with that as we begin. Cool. So let's pray. Father, um, these are your words, not mine. And I acknowledge that first and foremost. I'm so thankful that you have revealed yourself, not just through ambiguous ways, Lord, but through your spoken word, through the writers of Scripture, and through Matthew. Um, Father, as we engage his retelling of your son's entrance to Jerusalem, may we not uh, just glide through this passage, Lord, because we're too familiar with it. May we take the time to really wrestle with and understand what it is that you're teaching us, what Jesus is teaching us through this passage, Father. May we recognize the ways that the world operates and that Jesus is speaking against that in this passage. 
And may we too, as members of the body of Christ, speak against the ways of the world. May we embrace God's kingdom and not this one. We need you to do that, Lord. We need your grace. May you give us ears to hear. May you speak through me clearly. Uh, May we emerge encouraged. Pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, so with that, before we jump right into the passage, I would like to begin uh, with a story and with a person. Um, Not the cute little girl to the right, um, but the gentleman on the left. His name is Ryan, and uh, he's a pretty remarkable person. Um, And I think he helps set the stage for what we're getting into today. Ryan, when he was a student um, at his undergraduate school, did something that no other engineering student had ever done before. He graduated with a cumulative 4.0 GPA, which means that every class he took in school from introduction to literature to a hard engineering class like thermodynamics, he aced. He got a full A in. No one in 125 years of the school's history had ever done that before. Um, But Ryan wasn't just a gifted student. He was a tremendous leader. While he was at this school... He led a number of small group men's Bible studies and mentorship opportunities called discipleship groups. And eventually, when he became a senior, he was handpicked to be on a small group of students who mentored the mentors of those small groups. So he's basically helping to lead discipleship across the campus. Even beyond that, during his spring breaks of his junior and senior year, he donated his time both to the other students that came with him and to the inner city of Philadelphia by using the spring break to go on a mission trip. And he led those teams um, for two years. Even beyond that, Ryan, on a weekly basis, led a team of students into the inner city of Dayton to serve with a church in that community. He helped lead the youth ministries. He was a liaison to the pastor. He was heavily involved in the life of that church. And he also was in the process discipling the people who were a part of that team. And so step with me into convocation at this school Uh, Convocation is this sort of pre-graduation party for engineering students. Um, And the reason that they did that for those students and not the whole campus is because engineering was an incredibly difficult major at this school. In fact, quite a few students, the majority of the freshmen that came in majoring in engineering, dropped out of the program before they graduated. Um, And those that stayed in were just happy to graduate in most cases. And so this was a time of celebrating for the students and for their families. Um, And usually what would happen is each student would be brought up and acknowledged, not only for his academic merit, but for anything that he had done on campus. Um, And I have to be honest, for most of these engineers, because they were just trying to survive, their extracurricular activities were pretty limited. Um, I can remember distinctly several of the guys coming up, and the screen would flash with their activities, and it would say, intramural volleyball, or basket weaving. I mean, just really simple, laid-back things, because these students were so devoted to their academics just to graduate. But then Ryan came up on stage, and the screen like this one was full of leadership activities, and you could hear the audience audibly gasp, because they had already been introduced to Ryan. He had received a number of plaques and awards for his accomplishments, so they knew who he was academically. They had no idea that, from a leadership perspective, this guy had been heavily involved in the life of the campus. And when he was brought up on stage, Ryan's faculty advisor, who was up there with him, made a statement. He said that, I asked Ryan, what was your one regret at Cedarville? And you could almost see everyone in the room just lean forward. Because, what, I mean, what could this guy have regretted? He had accomplished everything he could have hoped to accomplish. He had led like an incredible leader. He had done everything and anything you could have expected from a student. And Ryan, in that moment, said 
something incredible. He said that he regretted learning too late the value of investing in a few. And the silence was just deafening. Because Ryan, in that moment when he could have celebrated himself, he could have pointed to some academic achievement, Ryan instead chose to highlight the kingdom of God. He publicly denied the ways of the world in a seemingly backward and upside-down way. He could have acknowledged all of his accomplishments. He could have made some sort of offhanded joke. But he instead decided to show that investing in the lives of a few mattered more than all of the other things that he had done. And I want to propose to you that that example helps point us to a theme that we see in this passage, the theme, the theme of the kingdom of God, this upside-down revolutionary kingdom, and its king, Jesus. And so with that, I want to transition now into the passage and into our time of learning. Um, and I want, to, I want to really challenge you guys to recognize this, this sermon and this message um, focusing on a very pivotal moment in Jesus' history, a moment where so much changes in the way that he's been operating and how he makes a statement about the kingdom of God that in many ways is unparalleled in other parts of the Gospels. As we study this passage, we're going to look in four, sort of break this sermon down into four ways. Um, first, we're going to look at the demand for the king. After that, we're going to look at the return of the king. We'll then look at the reign of the king. And then finally, we'll look at the call of the king. So let's first then begin with this demand for the king. And in order to do that, I want to make sure that we're getting the context for what's happening as Jesus is getting ready to enter Jerusalem. It's really easy for us as modern readers to go to scripture and just read assumptions into the passage based on what we know, what our culture is, how we operate. And I want to challenge us to realize that the Bible wasn't written yesterday and that we need to allow the historical and contextual truths that are happening in Jesus' time to inform the way that we read this passage. And so with that, I'm going to break down this idea of the demand, this longing for the king that the Hebrew people experienced into three specific demands. The patriarchal demand, a prophetic demand, and a political demand. Let me see if I can define the first one first when I say patriarchal. I mean when I say a patriarch, somebody, usually a man, who is of historic and hereditary leadership, a model, kind of the the pinnacle of the family, right? Like the great-great-grandfather. And this is someone that um, Hebrews highlighted in their tradition and history. This was really how they interpreted their lineage as a people. And when we think about patriarchs, the first one that comes to mind is Adam, who is noted in Genesis as being the first man that God created. He was charged to be the steward of all creation. He was charged to be the keeper of what God had created, but he failed in that role. He failed to lead his family and plunged all of creation into the chaos and brokenness that we now experience, the disease, the destruction, and death. And he did that because he sinned. And so even though he was lifted up to be in a role, he failed in that responsibility. We see in the next patriarch in uh, Abraham in Genesis 12, a similar story where Abraham is called out of his people by God to start a new people, the people of God, chosen and selected to represent God here on earth. And Abraham does that faithfully, but he's not perfect. In fact, he makes a number of mistakes along the way, and he only lives to see the next generation, even though he was promised by God that one day his great-great-great-grandchild would be the Messiah, the one who would fix the mess that Adam had started earlier in the book. After Abraham, we come to Moses, who many of us know led the Hebrew people out of exile in Egypt. Um, He was a valiant and courageous leader at times, but he was also an arrogant and prideful one. 
And so even in his great leadership and in his great legacy, we see flaws. Flaws that didn't allow Moses to reach the promised land eventually. In fact, even though he was leading the people there, he was never allowed to set foot in that land by God. And then perhaps maybe the most highlighted patriarch in the Hebrew tradition, that's King David. David was one of the few faithful kings uh, for the Hebrew people. David um, was someone that scripture described as being a man after God's own heart. He was courageous. He was humble. He was loving. He was valiant. He had so many characteristics that the people were looking for in that Messiah, the one that was promised to Abraham. But he was not the Messiah. We see this in his sinful conduct, a terrible murder, adultery. We see, even in his failed leadership, the disintegration of the Hebrew kingdom. This man, for all that he was, for everything that he did, was not the promised one. And when the Hebrews looked back to their patriarchal history, when they remembered their kingdom being what was once one, eventually broken into two different nations, and conquered by two major empires, when they looked at that part of their history, it created a deep longing for the Messiah to return, to come, to fix this broken mess, and to bring the people back together, unified, glorified under God. That's the first demand, the patriarchal demand. Next, we come to the prophetic demand. Um, And when I say prophet, I mean someone who's been charged by God to declare God's word to the people. It's someone that God basically used to be his voice in this world. And I think Nate Egger really summarizes the feeling of this demand in his book, Default Christianity, when he says, God didn't give up on his people. In exile, he continued to remind them, as he had in the fall, that one day things would be different. A different kind of king would reign over God's people. God sent prophet after prophet with a message of the promise of restoration and recreation. Unlike David, there would be no end to the new king's government. His throne would last forever and stretch to the ends of the earth. And so that's a really excellent summary for what the Hebrew people experienced during this time of prophetic demand. We see it here in Isaiah 9, as Isaiah, as the voice of God, reminds the people that David's throne would be retained, and though it had been broken, it would one day be restored. We see it in Daniel 2, where Daniel prophesies that the throne of David wouldn't just last for some time, but it would be an eternal throne, one that would go on forever and ever. We see it in Ezekiel 11, where Ezekiel prophesies that the people of God would be restored, they'd be brought back to their land where they'd been taken. But they wouldn't just be restored politically, they'd be restored to God. And God would actually be involved in the process. He would be their leader, their king. We see this as well in Amos, who again, not only promises to provide um, David's throne restoration, but again, the Lord is the one who's doing that work. He is the one who is making the change. And so as the people would look back and they'd read the prophets and they'd see what they're saying, They would long, they would hope for this Messiah who they recognized to be God himself, to show up, to right the wrongs, to unify them, to bring them together. In addition to the patriarchal demand, these two demands were powerful. They created deep longing. So this leads us now to the third demand, which is what I would call the political demand. And when I say political, I just mean having to do with governments and nations and countries. And subjugation, unfortunately for the Hebrew people, did not end when they returned to their land after those first captivities. The great empire of Rome also conquered the Hebrew people. And their subjugation was particularly oppressive. It was particularly ingratiating for the Hebrew people. And we see this in many examples, but I'm just going to point out three. 
First, we see Rome oppressing the Hebrew people in a religious way. One of the generals of the Roman Empire when, Hebrew, when the Hebrew people were first conquered was a man named Pompey. And this man not only entered the exterior court of the temple, but the inner parts of the temple where only priests were allowed to go. He even went into the Holy of Holies, killing people on his way. Now, just to give you some perspective, priests would spend the majority of their day just cleansing themselves, washing themselves to even walk into that space because they believed God's presence was there. And yet Pompey, this foreigner, this Gentile, this non-Hebrew, barges his way into the temple, kills all that he runs into, and even steps into where God's presence is supposed to be. This was incredibly blasphemous, it was inappropriate, and it was something that the Jews held on to. It was something they ached over. We see Rome oppressing the Jewish people politically as well. During the subjugation of the Hebrews, Rome would actually take different Hebrews that they appreciated, and they would appoint them to the Sanhedrin, basically the religious and political leadership of the Hebrews during their time of of being conquered. This, again, was so inappropriate to the Hebrew people because they knew the Old Testament traditions, they knew the laws they had to follow to select their leaders, but Rome was completely ignoring those and appointing people that they knew would respect the Roman Empire. But then last of all, and perhaps worse, was a social and civil oppression that the Hebrews experienced under Rome. This was something known as the head tax. And we're familiar with taxes in this country, but this tax was kind of different. It wasn't a really heavy tax that caused a lot of people to be impoverished. It was a tax that was small and insignificant, basically a poor man's day wage, but every citizen in the Roman Empire had to pay it. Why? Because it was a reminder that they were the subjects of the empire that the Roman Empire ruled them. Not just their people, not just their country, but them, that person. And this was perhaps most offensive to the Hebrews because they bowed to no one except God. And so multiple revolutions were actually started over this tax. They were put down immediately by the more powerful Roman people. But this, in addition to all of the other political subjugation that the Hebrews experienced, just it just was so frustrating, so ingratiating, Um, in addition to all the other demands that they had been experiencing, that the Hebrews at Jesus' time were longing for change. But their longing had become, in a way, warped. The Hebrews weren't just longing for the restoration of the world and for God to come back. They were longing for political revenge. They were longing for God to come back and do a work on the Roman Empire. Um, And I think N.T. Wright explains this well in his book, Simply Jesus. Wright says that God had promised to come back to return to his people in power and glory, yes, and to establish his kingdom on earth as in heaven. But the Jewish people always hoped that this would simply underwrite their own national aspirations. He was, after all, their God. And so they awaited a divine hurricane to reinforce their already overheated, high-pressure system. So we see, family, that what the Hebrew people are longing for isn't just restoration. It's their own political salvation. And this is starting to warp their vision of who the Messiah would be. So given that context, I want to now step into the next part of the sermon, which is the return of the king and focusing more on Jesus and the Messiah. But even before we get into Matthew 21 itself, I want to actually, again, make sure we're understanding the context of the passage. Because within Matthew, there are things that are going on that should help guide us in understanding what the passage actually says. Matthew is one of the four Gospels in the New Testament, and its primary audience is the Jewish people. 
So when Matthew's writing, he's writing to a group of people that he expects to understand certain things about Hebrew tradition and culture. The theme of that message, the theme of the gospel, really is this idea of the kingdom. It's mentioned 50 times in this gospel alone. And Matthew cites almost 70 different passages from the Old Testament to make many of his points, to make connections between Jesus as a man of Hebrew, a Hebrew man, a man of Nazareth, and actually being the Messiah himself. Um, He actually does this in 12 specific ways in the Gospel of Matthew, where he cites explicitly a prophecy about the Messiah and makes a connection to Jesus and that prophecy. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 1, when the angel Gabriel appears to uh, Mary, he cites Isaiah 7 to show the connection, because Gabriel had told Mary, who was a virgin, that she would give birth to the Messiah. And so when Matthew recognizes this, he goes to Isaiah 7, a prophet, and he shows the link. Notice that in Matthew 1, the words are almost identical to the words that are used in Isaiah 7. Matthew is doing this to build a case that Jesus isn't just some guy. He is, in fact, the Messiah. And so given all of that context, everything that we've gone through so far, um, I want to go ahead and make the case that Jesus isn't even just resting on those prophecies and all of that context. He's actually making specific demands about who he is and how he is, in fact, the Messiah. And I think he does that in four ways. Jesus appeals to his lineage. He appeals to his title. He appeals to the land and to subjects, right? These are four things that kings usually have. They possess things that show that they are, in fact, king. I would say that Jesus, in Matthew 21, is doing that here as well. First, let's look at Jesus claiming his line, his lineage, Now, when I say line, again, I'm referring to this lineage, this idea that he's part of the royal reign. Now, this is kind of a a nuanced point, so stay with me. Um, But I think something's happening in Matthew's genealogy, the very first chapter of the book, that makes the case that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, and that his entrance into history is a significant one. It's not just an accident. Notice with Abraham, um, there are 14 generations between Abraham at the beginning of the genealogy and then David. There are then 14 generations between David and the exile. After the exile, there are 14 generations to Joseph and Mary. Now, if you think of 14 as two sevens, that means there have been six sevens up to the time of Joseph and Mary when they give birth to Jesus. And Jesus is beginning the seventh seven. He's starting what, would, what is a, a very significant number in Hebrew tradition, this idea of seven sevens or the year of Jubilee. Now, the year of Jubilee was a tradition in the Hebrew people's history where God instituted this forgiveness of debt, this forgiveness um, of all uh, wrongs among the Hebrew people. Slaves were set free. God instituted this among the Hebrew people to remind them that restoration would happen and that this world was not all that there was. Jesus is actually pointing to the year of Jubilee by coming at this time. And not just any Jubilee, but a grand historic Jubilee, one that has spanned so many generations. And Jesus is kicking off this period through his birth. This isn't just some accident, family. This is Jesus showing up at a key historic time, declaring that sins will be forgiven, not just debts. And that not just slaves would be set free, but we would be set free from the bondage of sin. This is an incredible moment in history, and it's not an accident that Jesus is showing up claiming his line through the book of Matthew. Now, in the actual, I'm sorry, I want to note this too. When Jesus starts his ministry, just to help make this point even further, 
when he first kicks off his role as Messiah, he cites a passage that uses Jubilee language. Look at Luke chapter 4, where Jesus unrolls the scroll, which he found, and found the place where it was written. Now, this is him reading a passage in the synagogue. And Jesus reads this passage from Isaiah. It says that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's using jubilee language. He's saying we're entering a historic jubilee, one where wrongs will be righted, maybe not in the way that you're expecting, but in a radical life transformation, historically transformative time. So first we see Jesus appealing then to his line. We also see him appealing to his title, his role as king. Now you'll notice in the passage behind me, here in Matthew 21, in verse 3, that Jesus refers to himself as the Lord. When he's telling his disciples to go get the donkeys, he says that if anybody asks about it, they should just say that the Lord needs it. In other words, I need it, and I'm the Lord. Now this is significant, because even though we're from, many of us are familiar with Christianity and we know that Jesus is God, Jesus has not referred to himself as Lord much up to this point. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus heals a man with leprosy, but then demands that he be silent. In Matthew 12, Jesus begs crowds to be quiet after he's performed miracles, but the Pharisees notice and they begin to plot against him. And so in Matthew 13, Jesus begins to speak in parables so that he's less clear and less straightforward about who exactly he is. Matthew 16, Peter actually confesses Jesus to be the Messiah, and while Jesus acknowledges that he's right, he tells Peter not to tell anyone. And then in Matthew 17, Jesus is brought into the presence of God through the transfiguration. It's this glorious event. Some of his disciples see it, and as they leave, Jesus looks at each of them and tells them not to tell anyone. So for Jesus, who up to this point in his ministry has shrouded his kingship in the background, to then go in Matthew 21 and declare himself to be Lord is significant. He is claiming the title of king. He is saying that I am, in fact, the king of the Jews. I know I've been shrouding it up to this point, but this moment where I enter Jerusalem, this is the time where I'm going to say, I'm the king. I am here to conquer and to restore. So in addition to his line and title, Jesus also claims land. We see this in three specific ways. Prior to Jesus arriving in Jerusalem through the triumphal entry, he actually raises a man named Lazarus from the dead which was completely unheard of in Hebrew tradition. People didn't just rise from the dead. And it was a big deal because not just for the fact that someone was risen from the dead, but because death was significant when you thought about creation being in brokenness, right? Death came because of Adam's sin. Because of Adam's sin, brokenness entered the world. People began to die. Disease happened. And Jesus is saying, I actually have control over that. I actually have control over the way that creation responds to this brokenness. In fact, I can actually write it when it's wronged. Later, when we see Jesus grab the donkeys, this is also a significant moment where he proves himself to be Lord of creation. Because neither of these donkeys have been ridden before, but Jesus immediately begins to ride on them. That's incredible. That's unheard of. It would usually take days, if not weeks, to be able to teach an unridden donkey how to do that. But Jesus, as the true Adam, one who knows and understands creation, is immediately able to take hold of the donkey and to treat it properly. This is an incredible display of Jesus being in charge of the land of creation. And then even lastly, this may seem insignificant, but it's important. 
after Jesus enters into Jerusalem, after the triumphal entry, the Pharisees approach Jesus and they tell him to rebuke the people who are celebrating him as king. And Jesus says, I'm not going to rebuke them. And even if I did, the stones themselves around us would cry out and praise me. Jesus is saying blatantly in front of the religious leaders, not only are these people selling me, celebrating me, but creation will celebrate me because I am king. And I'm laying claim to my title as king. So we've seen Jesus lay claim to his line, his title, his land, and now his subjects. And this is perhaps the most obvious of all as we see Jesus entering in. We see the people declaring Hosanna as we did during service. We see them laying their garments before him. Now these are very significant images. To lay the garment before someone was to treat them as king. This is what the Hebrews did actually in the book of 2 Kings when a man named Jehu was anointed. They acknowledged him as king by laying their own clothes before him so that he wouldn't have to walk on the dirt. They're not just doing this randomly. They're saying, we think you're king, Jesus, and we're going to lay our cloaks before you. Also, when they're saying Hosanna, this is Davidic language. David wrote Psalm 118, and that part of Psalm 118 where he says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is a psalm of rescue. It's Jesus asking, or it's, I'm sorry, it's David asking for rescue, for salvation. And that's exactly what these people are asking for, right? Remember the demand, the longing that we already talked about. These people are asking to be rescued from the Roman oppressors, from the way that the world is treating them. They're saying, we recognize you to be Messiah. Hosanna, rescue us. And so Jesus is laying claim to his subjects in those two ways. But he also does it in a really unique and a way that I had never seen before. Now, David, who we've already discussed was actually removed from his throne at one point um, during the end of his reign. His own son, Absalom, who he failed to lead well, tried to kick David out of his rightful place as king. And when David fled Jerusalem, David left with two donkeys. And while he did come back to Jerusalem, his reign was never the same. He uh, died soon after, his family was in shambles, and the kingdoms were split. Now look how Jesus is coming back. Matthew is the only gospel out of all the gospels to note that Jesus comes back with two donkeys. Jesus is doing that to remind the Hebrew people of David's absence. He's coming back. While David left in fear, Jesus is coming back with courage. And he's saying, I am king. David faltered. I will not. His reign is starting now, and it's never going to end. Given all of that, given all the ways that Jesus is claiming his title, I want to ask you, Do you understand? Do you see what is happening? This is the return of the king. All to this point, much of what Jesus had done had even been done by other prophets like Elijah and Moses. They had healed people. They'd even seen God. But these four things were unique to Jesus. Jesus is saying, I'm not just a prophet. I am the Messiah. Come. Here, Jesus alone is uniquely taking his place as king and the longing not only of Jesus' followers, but of the whole Jewish people, will finally be put to rest. The king, the Messiah, has promised to restore the world, to overturn all oppressors, and he has arrived. So with that, I want to step into a really important prophecy um, that Matthew cited in this passage. Remember how Matthew's working in this book. Well, this is crucial, because this this prophecy um, that Matthew cites is from Zechariah, and it talks about the return of the king. Now, looking at this slide, can anyone tell what's missing from what Matthew cited on the right 
to what the original prophecy said on the left in Zechariah 9. Anybody? What is missing? Yeah, go ahead, Martha. Yeah, so they both, they both do talk about a king, though. You're, you're picking up on something, though. What are those words that are actually missing in the Matthew one? Good. So you see that, right? In Zechariah 9, um, and Martha pointed this out. So Martha said that in the Zechariah 9 passage, righteous and having salvation is he, is not quoted in Matthew 21. So why did, why did Matthew leave that out? I mean, up to this point, he's been pretty meticulous in citing the prophecies and the sayings of the Old Testament. I wanted to propose to you it's not really that complicated. Um, in fact, if we think about all the ways that Jesus is emphasized in Matthew, he's emphasized as being king. Yes, he's acknowledged as being uh, mounted on a donkey and humble, but there's lots of historical evidence to suggest, in fact, that that's exactly what conquering kings did. They came in after they'd conquered a town on a donkey. So, G- so Matthew, in this passage, is trying to highlight Jesus as a conquering king. Righteousness and salvation are more or less of an afterthought. And that really goes along with so many of the other things that we've talked about. Um, he, it lines up with Jesus as being um, all, you know, the full Lord of all these different prophecies, how he rebukes the Pharisees, how he even goes to cleanse the temple. Um, it really goes along with everything that we've been talking to up to this point. Jonathan, Jesus says, what are you doing? Uh, Matthew, what are you, what are you doing? Uh, you're misunderstanding the passage, and you're not giving me enough credit. What? Uh, wait, you credit? Yes, I'm Matthew, the author of the text that you're trying to explain. Right. I, uh, for some reason, I was, you know, your name and... Oh. Yep, I'm just trying to explain something that you're overlooking. You're explaining to the church that I'm intentionally left out the phrase from Zechariah to frame Jesus as the conqueror. I didn't think you'd take the bait that easy. The bait? Yep. Have you not been paying attention even to your own sermon? Haven't you noticed that I've cited the prophets almost 20 times in this book and done so in very specific, some very nuanced and subtle ways? That's a pretty good point, actually. Um, If you don't mind me saying so, I think it's easy to underestimate the literacy skill of biblical authors like me. Do you think movies like The Sixth Sense can outperform the Word of God? Definitely not. Have you seen some of M. Night Shyamalan's stuff lately? It's been well, pretty I bad. Well, I think you're displaying less respect for the authors of Scripture than for those movie writers. You're missing a key nuance. Okay. I'm just going to play along and pretend that you are Matthew, the author. Um, I think I've studied this passage pretty well. You want to care and enlighten me on what he's actually doing here? My pleasure. I left that verse out so you would do exactly what you did up there on the screen. Compare what I cited to what Zechariah wrote down. I did it to highlight, not to overlook, the words missing from Zechariah's prophecy. I did it to show that Jesus' kingdom isn't like any other kingdom. It's different, it's extraordinary, and it's characterized not by powering over prestige and conquering, but by salvation and righteousness and peace. Yet time and time again, My people fell for the ways of the world. They tried to fit the long-awaited Messiah's reign into their own visions of shalom. They didn't realize he came to save them from their bondage to sin and brokenness Hmm. and to enroll them in a new way of living. 
Don't you see? The people hailing him aren't celebrating their salvation. Hmm. They're cheering on the Messiah that they want, one that will overthrow the Roman emperors, one that they hope will restore Israel politically, and one that fits their criteria. Hmm. So what you're saying is that those words that you left out weren't left out to be ignored. They were being left out to being highlighted? Correct, and more than that, I'm immersing you in the perspective of the Jewish people eager for revolution. I've led you to do exactly what so many of the Jews have done in this passage. I've gotten you caught up in cheering for a Messiah that doesn't exist, a Messiah that comes to conquer when the real one is coming to die. So, wow, in other words, we've missed and they've missed the deeper truths of the Messiah. That's right, and you took the bait. Remember that next time you're quick to judge the people of God. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. And he's right. Somehow, Jesus is fulfilling all of these prophecies that we've talked about. He is the king, and he's laying claim to his title. And yet, the kind of kingdom that he's bringing in, it's otherworldly. It's different than any other one that we've ever seen in history. So the question that we need to ask ourselves then is what kind of kingdom is this king bringing in? And that's what we're going to focus on for this next portion of the sermon, the reign of the king. And when I say the reign of the king and the kingdom of God, maybe I can help illustrate through a situation that happened uh, with Jesus and his apostles, specifically um, the men John um, and James. Um, they recognize pretty quickly that one of the major characteristics of Jesus' kingdom is that it's upside down. It's backwards from the way that we think about kingdoms. You see, James and John, they approach Jesus during one of their walks, and they ask him to be placed at his right and left hand. They want to be in positions of authority when Jesus comes, kicks the Romans out, and becomes the king. And, and Jesus pulls them aside and says, you don't know what you're asking for. Because Jesus knows that weeks later, to his right and to his left will be two thieves hung on a cross. And so Jesus recognizes that they don't understand what Jesus' kingdom is actually about. And so he says in Mark chapter 10, here, when he's describing his kingdom, he says that you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, right? This is what's happened from the Roman rule. They lord over the Hebrews. But it shall not be so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man, me, Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Look at what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that the kingdom of God is not about lording over people. It's not about using power over, but it's coming under people, serving them, giving your life for them, praying for people that persecute you. That is how our kingdom is going to be defined, not by the way that others define their kingdoms. I think N.T. Wright really summarizes this well here in following Jesus when he says that the world embraces a different sort of kingdom and a different sort of power. The world as a whole runs on the principle that might makes right. We like to pretend that we're more civilized than that, but again and again, not least in this most recent century, we have seen that when the chips are down, we revert to the same rule. If in doubt, send in the tanks. Right? This is the way that the kingdom of the world operates. This is how we think. 
But Jesus is saying, I'm not about that. The world might send in the tanks. I'm going to choose to love my enemies. And look at how Jesus embraces this. He doesn't just talk about it. He does it. Look at his life. When you look at that genealogy, there are outcasts littered all through it. Prostitutes, Gentiles, people of no regard. That's the line that Jesus comes from. Jesus was born into poverty. When he was a child, he had to flee to the country of Egypt as a refugee where his own people had been subjugated for generations. Most people believe that he was likely to have lost his father at a young age. When he started his ministry, he was driven out of his own hometown. When he ministered, he was likely homeless and without many possessions. When he finally declared himself to be king, he was dragged through an unjust trial by his own people, the ones he'd come to save. He was abandoned by his disciples. He exchanged a crown of a king for a crown of thorns. And when he died, he was buried in a borrowed tomb. This is not the way that kings of our world treat themselves. This is not the way that they behave. But look at what Jesus is embracing. Through all of that, he conquers. This is the way that God's kingdom works. It's upside down from the way that we think of it. Look at the Sermon on the Mount, a passage we completely overlooked when going through Matthew. This is the key sermon of Jesus' whole ministry. And look at what he's saying. Blessed are the poor, the meek, the mourners, the peacemakers, the merciful, the pure in heart, the persecuted. These are not people who are blessed in our society. But Jesus is saying, in my kingdom, these are the blessed ones. Jesus says that if you're angry towards someone, you've actually committed sin worth going to hell over. That if you look lustfully at someone, you've actually committed adultery. That when, you should, when your enemies confront you, you should love them and pray for them when they persecute you. And that you should seek this kingdom that I'm declaring over anything else and not be anxious. What Jesus is teaching is so backwards, it's so upside down. And yet this is the agenda of his reign. This is what he's about. It's what we're about, family, as the people of God. Look at how Martin Lloyd-Jones describes this in his book. It's a large um, commentary of sermons that he did on a Sermon on the Mount. And he describes the sermon in this way. Jones says that the world is looking for and desperately needs true Christians. If only all of us were living the Sermon on the Mount, men would know that there is a dynamic in the Christian gospel. They would know that this is a live thing. They would not go looking for anything else. They would say, here it is. And if you read the history of the church, you will find that it has always been when men and women have taken the sermon seriously and faced themselves in the light of it, that true revival has come. And when the world sees the truly Christian man, it does not merely feel condemned. It is drawn. It is attracted. And here in this sermon, we find the life to which we are called. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying in the sermon. It's not just about being blessed. The blessing is not primarily for us that Jesus is describing. The point about the blessing in the Sermon on the Mount is not what God does to us, but what God does through us. God says that when the world sends in the tanks, I send out the peaceful, the meek, the humble. Those are my people who I send out to make change in this world. It's not merely about blessing ourselves anymore, family. When we're in the kingdom of God, we're about blessing others. And so that's what we mean when we say this kingdom is upside down. But it's also a revolutionary revolution. That sounds kind of funny, but let me see if I can explain what I mean. Think about most revolutions in history, including our own. Right? Usually what happens, we have one tyrant exchange for another. We have oppression in either case. We have injustice in either case. Revolutions don't change the core issues of society. They merely fine-tune them. They merely change who's on top. 
But Jesus' revolution completely changes the way we operate as society. Instead of seeking our own acclaim, we seek the acclaim of others. Instead of emptying others to fill ourselves, we empty ourselves to fill others. His is a true revolution. I think Tim Keller summarizes this well in his own book, King's Cross. And Keller says that Jesus is indeed leading a revolution, but it is a different kind of revolution, a much greater one than history has ever seen. What happens in the kingdom of this world is that revolutions basically just rearrange the furniture. I love that phrase. They fine-tune the same old order. Every revolution brings a new set of people into power, but Jesus isn't putting a new set of people into power. He's bringing in a totally different administration, the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying to all of us about this kingdom that my kingdom is not of this world. It's completely different. This is how I'm going to change things. I'm going to put others ahead of myself. I'm going to love my enemies. I'm not going to repay evil with evil. I'm going to overcome evil with good. I will give up my power and my life. My revolution comes without a sword. It is the first true revolution. And so, so far, family, we're just describing the kingdom, right? This kingdom of God that Matthew cites 50 times in his book, but we haven't defined it yet. So what is the kingdom of God? I want to point us to two passages in the Gospels that I think together create a solid definition for what we mean when we say the kingdom of God. In Luke 17, Jesus explains that the kingdom of God is not in a place or necessarily in a certain group of people, but that the kingdom of God is in the midst of us whenever we submit our lives to Jesus. It's wherever that's happening. We see this in conjunction with Matthew 6, where Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray. And when he's teaching them that, he teaches them to pray that God's kingdom come, God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think if we put these two verses together, we can come up with a pretty robust definition for what the kingdom of God is. And I have it here on the screen. The kingdom of God exists wherever the rule and reign of Christ, Jesus the Messiah, governs the hearts, minds, and actions of his people. I want to say that one more time because I think if we get this concept, family, we get what it means to follow Christ. See, the kingdom of God exists wherever, anywhere, the rule and reign of Jesus the Messiah governs. It leads the hearts, minds, and actions of his people. Let me see if I can make this even clearer through a visual illustration, right? So let's ask ourselves, where is the kingdom? Is it in a building? Is it in a certain nationality or a certain group of people? And the answer to that is not to get trapped up in in the church building itself or in the Hebrew people themselves. The kingdom of God, again, go back to that definition, is wherever Christ's rule and reign is over the hearts and minds of his people. And so we see that when, when Christ's rule and reign comes into a group of people, they can be of totally different ethnic backgrounds, totally different identities, but worship the same God and be unified together. And a church, its building is not the kingdom, but it's when the group of people within that church say collectively, we're going to submit our lives to the king. We're not going to follow our own desires. We're going to be about his agenda and not ours. And when that happens, Christ's kingdom is present there. That's what we mean when we say the kingdom of God. J.I. Packer explains the kingdom in this way, and I want to use two more quotes just to really make sure we get what we mean when we say the kingdom. Packer explains that the theme of the kingdom of God is both in the Old and the New Testament, and that this kingdom came with Jesus, the Messiah, as a worldwide reality. 
existing wherever the lordship of Jesus is acknowledged with repentance, faith, and obedience. So again, if we as a family in this moment say, I repent, I trust in faith that Christ is my king, and I will now obey that kingdom agenda that you've laid out for us, the kingdom of God is present here. This is where the kingdom of God is. But there's more to it than that, and I think Scott McKnight explains that well. McKnight says that those who are committed to the kingdom of Jesus, those who did what Packer said, they submitted their lives, form a new society, which we now call the church. The kingdom's values are transformational. Transformation, a mustard seed, justice, restoration, joy, and an eternal perspective. And so to follow Jesus, then, means to take up his dream and then to work for it. Which means that we don't just enjoy the kingdom of God. We don't just sit on it by and by. We actually take our time, energy, and resources to advance the kingdom of God. We call other people that we know of in our spheres of influence, our neighbors, family, friends, coworkers. We say to each of them, you too can experience the joy of this kingdom. And we advance God's boundaries in that way. We say that this kingdom of God is not a political reality, but it is a relational one. And so I'm going to invite my friends to submit their lives to the king. And in that moment, when they've done that, Jesus' kingdom is present there. So what are we left with? What is Jesus saying? If all of this is true, what does it mean? What are we called to do in response? I want to propose that the call of the king can be summarized in three questions. Three questions that I want to leave us with, I want us to wrestle with, I want us to challenge ourselves honestly with these three questions. First of all, who is the king? Remember that the Hebrews themselves, who from a child's age memorized incredible portions of the Old Testament, and many of whom knew the Bible far better than we did, okay? they saw Jesus face to face, and they missed him. So if we think that we won't miss him, we're fooling ourselves. So let me ask you now, who is the king? The powers of the world, the kingdom that we are a part of here in this, this earth as sin reigns, suggests that violence and authority rule. Society says that we ought to lean in, get ours, subvert our, our others to gain our own acclaim. It's all about survival of the fittest. Seeking comfort, success, achievement. Those are the virtues of the kingdom of this world. And they seem natural, right? Because they get results. When you operate that way, in the short term, you get what you're looking for. But what have we encountered in Jesus through his entry into Jerusalem, through his declaration that his kingdom is different? We see Jesus, our creator and God, condemning these values. Jesus declares that the proud are lowered by God and the humble are lifted up and given grace. Jesus didn't merely teach this, he lowered himself. And if he is in fact real, if he did live the life he did, if he did die the death that he did, if he did rise from the grave, then we need to ask ourselves, are we going to acknowledge the kingdom of this world as the true king? Or will we decide that, in fact, Jesus, you are king, and I submit to you. If we believe that everything that we've said so far is true, then, in fact, family, the kingdom of this world is a farce. It is nothing. It is a mirage. And the true king has arrived. So my question to you is, who do you recognize as king? If you have not already submitted to the king, who is your king? Second, I want to ask you, will you follow the king? Some of us here recognize that Jesus is king. And that's fine, but that's not really all that there is to it. 
Because even if you recognize king, even if you acknowledge that the world needs to repent for its feeble attempts to try and take power from Christ as its true king, we need to repent. Just as the ways of the world stand in stark opposition to Christ, so do us, so do we, when we have not submitted our lives to the king. I'm reminded of a parable in the book of Matthew, chapter 13. Um, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, and he explains it in one of the simplest and yet most profound ways. Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then with great joy, he sold all that he had and buys that field. We're called family not just to say the treasure's there, but to give up our lives to receive it. It's not enough to say, Jesus, you're king. It's actually, we're actually called to submit our lives to the king. That's what it means to be a citizen of his kingdom. So if Jesus is in fact king, my question to you is, will you follow him? Will you give up that which you own with great joy and pursue Christ? Are you going to advance his kingdom or are you going to remain opposed to it? Do you really want to stand against the king that you acknowledge who's started a plan of redemption from the beginning of creation and say, nope, I don't want that. I'm actually going to stay within my own boundaries, run my own life, be my own king. I know you're king. I'd rather run things my own way. My question to you is, will you do that truly? Why not submit yourself to the king? I urge you, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Allow your life to be sacrificed for the ways of the world. Enter into the kingdom of Christ, and you just might find a peace that surpasses all understanding. You know, I don't know whose quote this is, but I think it's a pretty helpful one when we think about this, right? Sin at its core is when sinners place themselves in the place of the king. But salvation is when the king graciously puts himself in the place of sinners. Jesus has offered to do that. Will you receive it? Will you remove yourself from the place of the king? Will you instead submit to the king? And then third, family, this is for those of us who have said, I acknowledge Jesus as king. I have submitted my life to him. My question to you is, will you lay your life down for the king? Because if you've already been given by the grace of God the opportunity to follow Jesus, will you do so with abandon, reckless abandon? Because obedience at its core simply means to die to ourself. Jesus has laid claim to this world and to you as its rightful king, and you've acknowledged that. So will you, in fact, die to yourself, family? Will you forgo all other distractions, even the ones that are most difficult? Will you allow, no longer allow, safety, family, wealth, comfort, security, career achievement, prestige, culture, acclaim? Will you give those things up? Will you say that those are no longer king in your life? Will you let them pass by? Will you lay them at the foot of the cross and acknowledge, Jesus, you're my king, and I know these things are distractions, but I lay them before you. This mission that we're on, family, this kingdom that we're advancing is far too important to allow those things to obstruct our ability to expand God's kingdom. And so I ask you, will you lay your life down for the king? I think Nate Egger gets to this well in his book, that doing so is not about perfection. It's about wholeheartedness. Because wholeheartedness does not equal perfection. We see this in the lives of Jesus' disciples who gave up everything to follow, but still stumbled. 
But the difference between an unbeliever and a believer, or a traitor and a subject of a king, is not the presence of sin. Rather, it is a joyful willingness of the true believer when confronted with a previously unknown idol to humbly repent, eagerly throw off that distraction, and fix his gaze on Jesus. Will you do that with me, family? Will you acknowledge the idols that we have in our lives? Will we lay them at the foot of the cross? Will we humbly say, God, I won't probably follow you perfectly. I pray that I would, but I want a desire to follow you wholeheartedly. And that's what I'm asking, family. Will you lay your life down for the king? Will you follow the king if you acknowledge him to be king? And for those of you that don't, I ask you, who is the king? You know, I want to I come back to Ryan. Um, that's an old picture. <laughs> um, that is uh, a picture of me as a, a sophomore uh, in college, and apparently with a lot more hair. Um, you guys may have picked this up because of the, the details of the story I shared at the beginning of this sermon, but... I know Ryan. Uh, He went to the same school as me. He was two years older than me. Um, And he was one of the people that discipled me at Cedarville. Um, You know, when you think about Ryan, if you were to go back to Cedarville today, and you were to just ask students, and you were to talk to them, and and ask who Ryan Samuelson is, to be honest, nobody knows who he is. He's completely forgotten. You might find a few faculty or staff. But at Cedarville, where he had so much success, acclaim, achievement, he's basically been forgotten. But you know who hasn't forgotten, Ryan? The people that he poured into during his four years there. The people that he discipled. The people that he invested his life into. Ryan chose, above the ways of the world, to prioritize the kingdom agenda that says, I'm going to be about advancing what Jesus is doing in the world and the lives of people. And those are the ones, those are the investments that have lasted and will make the difference. May Ryan's example be a testimony to us, family. May we not chase the ways of the world when we acknowledge what Jesus is teaching us through this passage, that he could have conquered, but he chose instead to insert a whole new kingdom, a kingdom that has no end. May we do the same, family. May we disregard the ways of the world, and may we instead pursue the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, in this Palm Sunday morning, I'm overwhelmed with your humility, your sovereignty, your generosity. What other king could conquer a global empire by riding on a donkey? What other king could break all of warfare by the brokenness of your cross? What other king could replace all tyranny with reign of peace? Only you, Jesus. What other king would offer his life and death for the redemption and restoration of rebels? fools and idolaters like us? What other king would possibly make prisoners of sin, death, and destruction freed? Only you, Jesus. And so today, I join my brothers and my sisters in rejoicing that you have come to us victorious. You are righteous. You carry salvation. Our hosannas that we've sung today are filled with the sobering and gladding news of this holy week. And so we ask, would you lead us in a transforming gaze on your cross? Would you remind us of your grace? Would you remind us of the kingdom of God? We need you, Father, and we ask this all in your name. Amen.